This is the History of the World podcast with me, Chris Hasler. And you're listening to Volume 3, The Classical World. Episode 2, The Achaemenid Empire, Part 2. The first. Darius's origins are hazy. It seems that he was the eldest of five children, and it seems that his father held a high office, although we're not completely sure where this was. His father's name was Histaspes, and he appears to have served in Cyrus the Great's army. Darius himself had served in Cambyses II's army. Darius I's reign over the Achaemenid Persian Empire was absolutely considerable. If it wasn't already enough to talk of the achievements of Cyrus the Great, then there is a lot to talk about when it comes to Darius the Great. Now, I don't want to go into too much detail about Darius's ascent to the throne of Achaemenid Persia, purely because the original sources have differences in their accounts and many historians seem to tell the story which entertains them the most. There is suggestion that Cambyses' brother was not actually his brother and some accounts state that Bardia was killed by Cambyses and others state by Darius. There are also claims that the new king was chosen by the man whose horse neighed first in the morning and that Darius manipulated the situation so that his own horse would neigh first. For me, this has to be rubbish. Maybe we should just stick to what we know and what seems logical. Cambyses died without an heir and Darius, the son of a noble, seized the throne either by impressing the empire's elite enough to be chosen or by killing his rivals. It does appear that Cambyses was returning from Egypt to deal with revolts from factions within his empire. It seems that the revolts continued into the reign of Darius I, and that dealing with them would be one of the first duties of Darius's reign. Darius was able to subdue the rebels within his empire and would be able to concentrate his focus on other affairs. One of the most troublesome areas was Babylonia. 
Darius needed to besiege the Babylonian rebels a number of times before pulling them into line. But he was successful and he could now focus on imperial ambitions. Darius would return to Egypt where Cambyses was campaigning before the rebellions broke out. He would make good progress into the area of Cyrenaica, which is the lands of the modern country of Libya, which border on Egypt. It also appears that Darius crossed the Hellespont from Anatolia into Thrace and took territories on the European side of the Bosporus, bringing him very close to the new Greek city-states that had emerged in the lands of the former Mycenae in the Balkan Peninsula. This close proximity would prove to be a factor in a key chapter of human history between the Persians and the Greeks and something that we will explore with great vigour during this volume of podcasts. To the east, Darius would consolidate Persian territories up to the Indus Valley and would set up satrapies, which would be governed regions of the vast empire. Once again, the largest empire that the world had ever seen. Each satrapy would be governed by a local satrap, who would serve as a viceroy to Darius. The satrapy system was something that had developed since Median times in the previous century. Persepolis We are fortunate to have discovered tablets at the ruined city of Persepolis which tell us much about Darius I's administration of the Achaemenid Empire. Although there appears to be little in the way of a history such as the likes we have received from Herodotus, we do see much in the way of financial management in relation to taxation, payments and even expense accounting for officials travelling throughout the empire. The languages and writings that we discover point strongly towards a preservation of the individuality of the different races and origins of people within the empire with no time wasted on trying to Persianise the population. This seems to be a form of governance that was inherited from the days of Cyrus the Great, who appeared comfortable with allowing the people of his kingdom to feel free to speak their own language and practice their own religious observations. We should take a closer look at the city of Persepolis to get a closer perspective of Darius the Great who founded the city in 518 BCE. Persepolis would be a site of great palaces and secular buildings and theatres which would serve to be a great ceremonial capital city that would replace the former centre of Parsagadi. Darius would also be responsible for building a palace at the former Elamite capital city of Susa and this would serve as an administrative centre. In fact, many of the tablets recovered from Persepolis were written in Elamite script 
further confirming the preservation of historic tradition in the empire. We have also discovered reliefs at Persepolis, which demonstrate gift-giving ceremonies where representatives from the many satrapies that made up the Achaemenid Empire would gather to make offerings to Darius. Some of the gifts resemble those found in the collection of almost 200 gold and silver Achaemenid artefacts discovered back in the 19th century. This hoard of artefacts is called the Oxus Treasure and is named after the Oxus River, which is better known today as the Amu Darya, which flows from the border between Afghanistan and Turkmenistan into the Aral Sea. It is by this river that the hoard was discovered. Persepolis would be connected to the other parts of the Achaemenid Empire via the Royal Road System commissioned by Darius I, which would aid efficient travel between the cities of the Achaemenid Empire, which would speed up trade and make administration of the empire far more efficient. Historians recognise that a great legacy of building was carried forward by the Persians from the glory of the Babylonians who preceded them, and in turn the Assyrians who preceded them. In Herodotus's own words, there is nothing in the world that travels faster than Persian messengers, and this, in large part, is a testament to the royal roads. The Oxus treasure contains a model chariot made of gold and silver. The chariot has lightweight and large spoked wheels, which was a development made to chariots centuries previous that would replace the solid wheels used previously. The development of the large spoked wheels would have aided the chariot's efficiency. We can also see the studs of nails around the wheels which would represent the use of a metal tyre nailed to the wooden wheel to make it hard wearing and durable. The most famous royal road would have been the one from Anatolia to the city of Susa where we mentioned that Darius built his famous palace. Posting stations along the royal road would enable messengers and envoys to acquire fresh horsepower for maximum efficiency. This is why Herodotus recognises the seemingly unbelievable speed of the Persians. We know that the Persians were using coinage under the rule of Cyrus the Great. In Darius's new capital city of Persepolis, there existed a significant palace called the Apadana Palace, and excavations at this palace has revealed evidence of this Achaemenid coinage. However, it appears that Darius attempted to standardise the coinage across the realm with the introduction of the Sigloi and the Daric, two standard coins of the Persian Empire. So it's fair to say that Darius was a strong and administrative ruler. The Achaemenid Empire would enter the 5th century BCE and Darius would look to expand on his imperial ambitions, emulating his predecessor, Cyrus.
Ionian Revolt We have spoken of the city of Miletus as a pivotal city caught between the cultures on the Aegean coastline of Anatolia. A thousand years previous, the Minoans would occupy this city and then, in turn, the Mycenaeans. The Asiatic Hittites, who would be based further inland, east of the Aegean coast of Anatolia, would attempt to chase the Mycenaean Greeks out of Miletus and off of the Anatolian peninsula. Fast forward to the 6th century BCE and Cyrus the Great would take control of Miletus after his successful elimination of the Lydian kingdom. At the same time, the general culture of Miletus was much closer to the Greek cultures of this period, so the invasion of the Persians would have felt like an invasion of a completely foreign influence. As such, the Persians would have to install a local tyrant ruler to maintain peace within the city. The Persians would have installed local tyrants anywhere where necessary to maintain the peace in these far-off lands of coastal Anatolia and Thrace. The tyrant wasn't necessarily an evil man, as the modern sense of the word tyrant may suggest, but it was much more of a political role by comparison. Towards the end of the 6th century BCE, Miletus would fall under the tyranny of a man called Aristagoras. The story of Aristagoras is a story of loyalties. Initially, Aristagoras was a tyrant who was loyal to his Persian overlords. When the Cycladic island of Naxos decided to revolt against Persian rule, it would be Aristagoras who was called into action on behalf of the Persians to deal with the problem. Unfortunately for Aristagoras, when he arrived at Naxos in 499 BCE, he found a population well prepared and Naxos survived Aristagoras's siege. Aristagoras had to return to Miletus in shame and would recognise the pressure of being perceived by King Darius as an ineffectual tyrant. Aristagoras, in a desperate move, decided to turn against the Persians and rally support from other Ionian leaders. Ionia was the central part of the Aegean coastline of Anatolia and its outlying islands, including Naxos. The Ionians would rally behind Aristagoras and they would campaign towards the capital city of the Persians' Lydian satrapy, Sardis. As soon as Darius heard news of the attack on Sardis, he dispatched a Persian force to chase the Ionian revolt out of Sardis and back where they came from. Back in Miletus, Aristagoras would try to rally more Greek cultures into the rebellion, including the Cypriots and the Carians. It became clear that the Persians would need to invest more energy in dealing with the revolt. They would first deal with the Carians before engaging the Ionians at the crushing naval battle of Lardi, just off the coast 
from the city of Miletus. Aristagoras knew that the game was up at some point during these proceedings and abandoned Miletus, travelling to Thrace to try to rally support to aid his desperate situation. However, it appears that he was killed in Thrace, symbolising the end of the Ionian Revolt. Darius had to make a tough decision afterwards. Did he sit back satisfied with the work of his Achaemenid Persian Empire in eliminating the Ionian Revolt? Or did he recognise the danger of further revolts and invasions emanating from Greek city-states and influencing societies already under Persian control? Darius decided that the best way to deal with the problem was to conquer the Greek city-states on the Balkan Peninsula and make them a part of the Achaemenid Empire. The mainland Greek city-states who were at the forefront of support for the Ionian Revolt against the Persians were Athens and Eretria. But we also know that the Spartans had no interest in being subjugated by the Persians either. So despite the Greek city-states having a reputation for battle against each other, they were more than interested in collating their efforts to prevent invasion by a completely foreign culture, such as the Persians. Persian forces would initially take control of the Cycladic Islands in order to gain a foothold in the Aegean Sea, giving them a good vantage point for the Balkan mainland. This would include an invasion of the Ionian island of Naxos, which was the basis of the Ionian revolt in the first place. Once in control of these islands, the Persians turned their attention to Eretria on the significant island of Evia next to the Greek mainland. The Persians would successfully capture Eretria and with control of Thrace, the Persians would be in a very threatening position to the rest of the Greek city-states, particularly Athens who had supported the Ionian Revolt directly. Therefore, the Persians' next target would be the city of Athens. The Persians landed on the Greek mainland at a town called Marathon. The Athenians were prepared for this landing and met the Persians at Marathon. Due to some canny tactics, the Athenians, who would be outnumbered by the Persian invaders, were able to resist and unsettle the Persians who would be forced to retreat to their boats and set sail back to Asia. The invasion had failed and Darius was forced to rethink his tactics. Darius was determined not to allow the Athenians to resist him and began preparations for a new offensive. By this time, Darius was in his 60s and the Egyptians were also becoming quite rebellious against their Persian overlords. Darius would not get the opportunity to invade Greece again, even though this time he was planning to lead the campaign. Ill health took his life in 486 BCE and he would never realise his ambition to punish the Athenians. 
the Greek problem would be passed down to his son and successor, Xerxes I. As is often the case when a strong king is succeeded, there will often be those challengers, both internal and external, who will attempt to test the new king's abilities. Xerxes had to deal with both Egypt and Babylon before he could contemplate the Greeks. We mentioned about how Cyrus the Great helped to emancipate the exiled Jewish people from Babylon when he conquered Babylonia during the 6th century BCE. Cyrus would go on to restore the temple of Marduk in Babylon, as Marduk was the titular deity of the city of Babylon, and Cyrus respected the diversity of belief systems within his own Achaemenid empire. Xerxes would subsequently destroy the very same temple to punish the Babylonians for their rebellion. It would not be long before Xerxes would turn his attention towards Greece and attempt to complete the work of his father in subjugating the city-states of the Balkan Peninsula. Herodotus would claim that over two million Persians went to Greece to sort them out, but modern historians suggest that it was an awful lot less. What is interesting now though is that when Xerxes launched his offensive on the Greeks, Herodotus, the man whose works we often refer to for clues, would have actually been alive, albeit as just an infant at this time. So not only was Herodotus writing about history, but now he was actually becoming history himself. Many of the Greek lands submitted to the Persians on their return to the lands of the Aegean, recognising the sheer strength of the Persian invasion force. Once again, it would be Athens who would provide the most resistance. Ten years previous, when Darius's Persian forces met with the Athenians at Marathon, it was reported that the Spartans decided against the option to join the Athenians in the defence of their lands. This time, the situation was different and the Spartans made themselves available. The Persian army and naval fleet travelled along the coastlines of Thrace and Macedonia this time and approached the city-states from the north. This time they were actually led by their king, Xerxes I. The Allied Greek army and naval forces advanced to meet the Persians before they could advance further than Thessaly at a place that suited the Greeks to do battle. The plan was to wear down the numerous Persians enough so that the Persian forces would either retreat or be significantly depleted. The land battle took place at Thermopylae, where the Allied Greeks could only hold the advancing Persians for so long before they would have to retreat alongside the naval forces to set up a new defensive position south of Athens. This would mean abandoning the city of Athens, which the Persians gratefully occupied, as well as burning the famous Acropolis. The Persians would continue their advance while the Greek army would retreat to the Isthmus of Corinth to defend the Peloponnese, while the Persian naval fleet would advance to the area around the island of Salamis. 
Such was the size of the Persian fleet that manoeuvring around the waters of the island would become very cumbersome and the Greek naval fleet seized the opportunity to strike the disorganised Persians. Although heavily outnumbered, the Allied Greeks' tactical decision was a good one, with the Persian fleet routed at the Battle of Salamis. This was enough for King Xerxes I, who decided to go back to Persia and leaving his forces to try to save face without him. The following year, 479 BCE, the Allied Greeks were able to engage the Persians in battle both on land and at sea. This time the numbers were more evenly matched. The Greeks expelled the Persian forces from the Balkan Peninsula and pursued the Persian naval fleet across the Aegean before completely destroying it at Mycale. The Persian invasion was over and it was a costly defeat and a crushing lesson for the Persians who would not come back again. The aftermath of this episode would see the Persians go back to their own lands and concentrate more on internal projects. The Greek city-states would form the Delian League, which would stand united against Persian aggression. Macedon and Thrace were no longer under Persian influence and the coastal Anatolian city-states would regain their independence from Persian rule. The Decline of the Achaemenids It is an absolute testament to the abilities of the great kings Cyrus and Darius that the vast Achaemenid Empire succeeded for so long. Cyrus appeared to build the foundations of ethnic tolerance which appeared to be much more liberal than that of the Assyrians and the Babylonians before them. Darius standardised administration and invested heavily in the infrastructure of the empire while quickly suppressing any revolts within the empire. However, the maintenance of such a vast empire was always going to be limited in its lifespan as we have seen over and over again in history, both before and after this. The Persian Empire still remained considerably powerful throughout the rest of the 5th century BCE and deep into the 4th century BCE. The Achaemenid Persian Empire was an empire of considerable wealth throughout its tenure and if nothing else, it was comparably modern and innovative. Regardless of the fact that it was not as dynamic and swashbuckling as in the days of Cyrus II, Cambyses II, Darius I and Xerxes I, it was still the absolute and unquestionable powerhouse of the known world, without equal. The financial cost of maintaining such a huge empire was high and taxes would have been raised to accommodate the expenses. It is also likely that those satrapies, feeling less loyal to the central court of the king, would have been more likely to skim a bit off the top for themselves before paying it to the king. Tensions always remained high between Persia and Athens throughout this period, and their involvement in foreign wars, such as the Spartans' Peloponnesian War against the Delian League, 
led by the Athenians, would have exhausted Persian military resources, so the taxes would have needed to have been maintained to cover these costs. During the reign of Artaxerxes II, the Egyptians would rebel against their Persian overlords and actually expel them from their lands, making them independent until the reign of Artaxerxes III, who would subjugate the Egyptian satrapy into the empire once more. Being a Persian king during this period often meant that you would be meeting a grisly end. Many of the kings, after the death of Artaxerxes I, were killed while being the reigning monarch. This kind of culture of regicide is never a good thing for a kingdom and can only ever serve to debilitate it. However, Michael Axworthy, an Iranologist who wrote the book Iran, Empire of the Mind, states that the Persian army underwent modernising change during the Achaemenid period, with infantrymen being replaced by horsemen, with horses being made more available throughout the empire. Although the ability to do this is suggested to be thanks to the wealth of the empire, I wonder how much of this is down to high taxation. When Darius III ascended to the Persian throne in 336 BCE, the Achaemenid Empire was in a comparative state of turmoil, with many of the satrapies displaying rebellious behaviour towards its central governance. Philip II of the Kingdom of Macedon had been expanding his kingdom to encompass all of the Greek city-states and the lands of Thrace. Philip was preparing his kingdom for an invasion of Achaemenid Persia to avenge all of the actions of the Persians during the previous century when Darius I and his son Xerxes I invaded Greek lands. It should have been a fortunate turn of luck for the Persians when news that Philip II had been assassinated by one of his own bodyguards surfaced. Those Anatolian Greeks who were battling for their freedom from Achaemenid rule found themselves deflated by the news and the Achaemenids were subsequently buoyed by it, so the tide was turning in the Achaemenids' favour. Philip's son would succeed him as Alexander III of Macedon. So in 336 BCE, both the Persian Empire and the dominant kingdom of Greek lands Macedonia had new kings. Darius III was a wily man in his 40s. Alexander III was barely an adult and under pressure from the Greek city-states who saw an opportunity to overthrow Macedonian hegemony. Within the first two years of his reign, Alexander had successfully defended the work of his father and kept the restless Greek city-states under Macedonian hegemony in an alliance called the Hellenic League. This was not good news for Darius and the Achaemenid Persians as one of the primary purposes of the Hellenic League was to pull the resources of the Greek city-states in defiance of the Persians themselves. So logically, it would appear that the Greeks were about to make military incursions 
into Anatolia and the Greeks of Anatolia were ready to challenge their Persian overlords. Despite the fact that the Spartans refused to join the Hellenic League and its campaigns and the fact that some of the Anatolian Greeks decided to fight for the Persians against the Greeks, Alexander personally took a considerable military force across the Hellespont into Anatolia in 334 BCE and engaged the Persians in the battle at the Battle of the Granicus River. The victory of the Hellenic League at this battle was the first time that a foreign enemy had taken significant land from the Persians with the western portion now being under Macedonian control and not just the coastal city-states. It appears that the young and fresh Alexander was introducing a more liberal sense of rule in the satrapies of Anatolia which may have been tired of the tyrants loyal to the Persian court. More towns and cities appeared to welcome Alexander, so Darius and the Achaemenids had a huge problem on their hands. Darius had no choice but to get personally involved and lead an army to intercept Alexander. Their forces would engage near the town of Issus in southern Anatolia. Despite being outnumbered by Darius's forces, Alexander scored an unlikely military victory at the Battle of Issus in 333 BCE. This was a bitter blow to Darius who was forced to flee the battlefield. He had taken the dramatic action of personally leading the Persian army and subsequently was defeated. Darius had lost the whole of Anatolia and had lost considerable face on the battlefield. Why should the Persians continue to support Darius? A king who could not deal with this exciting, young, intelligent, brave and modern king, Alexander. Darius would offer half of his empire to Alexander in return for a peace treaty and a political alliance. Alexander told Darius that he was beneath him and that he would not stop until Darius had been personally defeated in battle. Some of the Persian naval forces were now the property of Alexander since taking the city-states of their origin. This would give Alexander the ability to conquer those city-states of Phoenician lands before approaching the Egyptians who were sick and tired of Persian interference in their politics and welcomed Alexander into their lands. The Persians would have no choice but to abandon Egypt. Alexander's forces would then engage with Darius again in the former lands of Assyria and Babylonia. This time Darius would ensure that the battle would take place in open land where Alexander could not outmanoeuvre Darius around tough terrain as he did at Issus. Somehow, once again, Darius got it wrong and Alexander was able to infiltrate the Persian army ranks. At the Battle of Galgamela in 331 BCE, 
Alexander had managed to secure all lands west of Mesopotamia. The Persian Empire was falling apart and Darius could not stop it. Darius would have to head east and form another army. Darius appealed to his eastern satrapies for help, but the satrapies had seen enough. How could they possibly believe in a leader who had been soundly defeated on the battlefield again and again? Darius retreated to Bactria in the north of the remainder of the Achaemenid Persian Empire, where the satrap Bessus recommended that leadership of the Persian army should be transferred from Darius to himself due to Darius's inefficiencies. Darius, as the king, had to refuse. It was unimaginable for Darius to allow another man to lead his own empire's army and demonstrate greater military leadership qualities than himself. Darius was in an impossible position. The remaining Persians and Darius himself knew that he was unable to defeat Alexander on the battlefield. However, Darius could not afford to be captured himself, otherwise he would surely be executed. There was already high danger that the desperate Persians would assassinate Darius in any case. If Darius gave command of his army to one of his satraps, then the Persians might prefer that man to be the king instead of Darius. Darius would have to insist upon leading the Persian army again, and nothing short of victory would be good enough. So Darius refused to relinquish control of his army to the Bactrian satrap Bessus. For Bessus, it would be unacceptable for him to continue to allow an incompetent king to lead the empire's army. Upon Alexander's approach, Bessus would abduct Darius, throw him into an ox cart and stab him with a javelin before fleeing himself. The Macedons would find Darius lethally wounded and taking his last breaths. Alexander would grant Darius a funerary ceremony befitting of a king. Bessus would subsequently declare himself the king of Persia, Artaxerxes V. But Achaemenid Persia was already in tatters by this stage. Most of it was gone and the rest of it was disunited. The Bactrians deserted Bessus and Alexander's Macedonian army continued to advance and Bessus was subsequently captured. Alexander would not afford Bessus the same respect as Darius in defeat. Bessus had disgraced himself by killing the king and assuming the throne himself with the intention of defying the Macedonians. It really wasn't a glowing character reference for the usurper. We're not exactly sure how Bessus was executed, but he was. You could argue that this was the very end of the Achaemenid Persian Empire, a glorious empire 
for over 200 years, the size of which the world had never seen before. Even though Bessus's death occurred in 329 BCE, there was an iconic moment during the previous year where Alexander took the Persian capital during the Battle of the Persian Gate. This would be the city of Persepolis, constructed by Darius the Great almost two centuries before. A city representing the glory of Achaemenid Persian power was now in flames, and this was surely the de facto end of the Achaemenid Empire and the ultimate revenge for the burning of the Acropolis in Athens, where the balance of power was so different. The Achaemenids were gone, and the Macedonians were here. That concludes our two-parter on the Achaemenid Persian Empire. To find out more about the events that lead up to the formation of the Median Empire, the cultural predecessor of the Achaemenid Persian Empire, then go back to Volume 2, Episode 7, on the Assyrian Empire. For the Jewish perspective of the Babylonian exile, then it's Volume 2, Episode 10. For the Egyptian perspective on the politics of Achaemenid Persia and Macedon and how it would affect them, it's Volume 2, Episodes 19 and 20. Well, that was intense, wasn't it, eh? Deary, deary me, I tell you what, that was real international politics going on there. That I love the Achaemenids. What a great story that they told over the last two episodes. I hope you enjoyed it and thank you so much for listening. Now, don't forget that you can support the podcast. Just visit the website, historyoftheworldpodcast.com and click on the Patreon link to make a monthly donation for as little as $1 a month. Those people who accrue... Uh, monthly donations of a certain amount all the details are on the website uh, will be sent a gift pack and already some of the gift packs have been arriving and if you go to the History of the World podcast Twitter account you'll see uh, that Matty Yokimo has been kind enough to send a photo of the of the gifts just to show that they've arrived safely so we do like to look after you if you look after us uh, we like to send you some personalised messages and one thing and another so we appreciate any support that you choose to give us uh, don't forget to rate and review the podcast that's the best way to support the podcast if you cannot afford to make a financial donation well I'm going to wrap up quickly this week because we overran with that episode somewhat however I did want to um, I did want to read out a lovely message that I received uh, from a Johanna Jones from New Mexico in the US um, who wrote to me and said I haven't written sooner because I had so much that I appreciate about your podcast that I just waited until I knew what to say now decided to say something and uh, add stuff later thank you so much for your cadence word choices echo chamber highlights the connective sounds music have become a moment for letting my brain take a breath my husband and i talk over different episodes every so often therefore we revisit earlier episodes and i find parts that i want to hear again and again to get most of what you said our conversations are higher quality and more fun because of your podcast i particularly appreciate your opinions comments i smile Whenever I hear you say my non-expert perspective, in my opinion, you have become an expert. I trust you. You have the cred now 
from so much research you have shared. Until next time. Well, um, yeah, well, my non-expert perspective, look, I mean, um, you know, we all have different degrees of expertise, even all of you as listeners will have different degrees of expertise, so I like to call myself a non-expert because I want this podcast to be something made by a layman for the layman's and um so i i suppose i wish to remain a part of the non-academic group of people who just love learning about history so i suppose uh, i suppose there's an element of that but that is an absolutely beautiful message written thank you so much joanna really appreciate that well that's it i mean we're going to wrap up for this week now what is there to look forward to next week Well, we're going to continue the chronological story of Persia. There's a lot more to tell. Now that Alexander the Great has dethroned the Achaemenids, um, the empire must continue. It's still there, so something must happen to it. Next week, we're going to find out what. So, we'll look forward to that. In the meantime, have a cracking week. And to all of you, a very, very Merry Christmas because it will be Christmas before we broadcast again. So that will be next Saturday. Have a wonderful Christmas, everyone. And until next week, cheerio. Do you want more from the History of the World podcast? Then visit our website, historyoftheworldpodcast.com. You can join our discussion forum and find us on social media. Support the podcast for as little as $1 per month by clicking the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. The best ones will be read out. Be sure to rate and review the show wherever you listen to us.